I appreciate that. Uh, we are several weeks now into our series of messages entitled, Can You Hear Him Now? Learning to Recognize and Respond to God's Voice. Um, and so I just want to sort of take the pulse of the group here uh, and get a feel. This is funny. I'm gonna, there's like 90% of you are on this side, and then there's like four of you on this side. We're going to figure this out. I'm going to glance at you and then look over here. That's how we're going to do that. Anyways, I want to get a, a feel for the pulse of how people are doing and whether or not you're tracking with this. And hopefully a lot of you have been here for most of these messages. And if you haven't been here, then you have a chance to listen to them online always at gracewardy.com. So uh, hopefully you've heard the messages. Um, so let me just ask you a basic question. Does our God speak? Yes, right? Hopefully we got that much figured out. I don't know if you figured out anything else that I've been talking about the last several weeks, but hopefully by now you understand that it's not just that we have this amazing story in the Bible about a God who once did amazing things and now he's sort of left it up to us to do our own thing, that, that he once spoke the world into creation and then he just sort of let it run on its own to see what would happen, or that he used to speak and he would speak through prophets, and he would do all kinds of miracles, and he would do amazing things, but that he's not really speaking anymore today. I've been trying every week in one way or another to make it clear that the God of the Bible is alive and well, and he is still speaking today. Amen? Okay, so hopefully we got that much figured out. So much, hopefully we got, we understand that. Um, and it's interesting to realize that if in fact he's God, which I kind of think he is, if he's God then the only thing that limits God is his own nature, right? So he can do anything within his nature as God. And it is his nature as God to speak, right? Now, how he speaks, that's up to him, isn't it? He could speak in any number of ways as God. He could communicate through skywriting in the sky. He could, he could do some sort of miraculous act that we would see him at work. He could reveal himself in some sort of visual way. We could hear a voice from the clouds. He could speak in a still small voice in our hearts. We could hear God any number of ways because God is free to speak in any number of ways. Amen? Amen. All right, so we have that much clear. We go into the Old Testament and we could just go down the list and we could look and go, okay, how did he speak to Abraham? It's really interesting how he spoke to Abraham. It's as though he spoke to Abraham like one man to another face to face. It was just this intimacy between him and Abraham. There was just this clear communication, just like if you were talking to your best friend. And then we see when he spoke to Moses, he spoke in a burning bush, right? Where else in scripture does he ever speak in a burning bush? Where else in history has he ever spoken in a burning bush? Nowhere, but we have this one story where he speaks to Moses in a burning bush, and it's amazing. It's a whole different way to speak. We see that he speaks to Joseph and a whole bunch of other people through dreams, right? And he's speaking in dreams, and then he gives interpretation for dreams. We see him wrestling with Jacob. We see him calling Samuel in his sleep when Samuel is still a little boy, and he hears his voice over and over and over again. We, we see God taking his finger and writing on the wall a message to a Babylonian king who doesn't even believe that God exists. He speaks in that way, right? He speaks audibly through a donkey in the book of Judges. Um, in, in the book of Genesis, when he needs to save Lot and his family from Sodom before the destruction, he sends two angels to Sodom, and they appear to be men, and they speak on behalf of God, right? And so the point is, those are all completely different ways that God spoke. 
And we could do more, right? There's all these different ways that God spoke. But rest assured, if God has something to say, he is perfectly capable of saying it. And he can say it however he decides to say it. We've already established that it's God's nature to communicate. And he's always spoken and he's still speaking today. And the question is, how does he speak today? And so we're trying to dig into that a little bit more. Does he speak today in the same way that we see him speaking or revealing himself in the Bible? Let's just take the Old Testament, for example. Does he speak all those ways that I just mentioned? They're all different ways. Do we see God speaking? Can we expect God to speak today in those kinds of ways? Or look at the New Testament and how he spoke through the apostles and even had them write scripture. Is God still speaking in that way today? Can we expect him to speak in that way? Is there any reason to think that God might speak in different ways to different people at different times? And is there anything that sets apart our day and age from, say, the Old Testament era or the New Testament era and the way that God communicated then? Well, those are all excellent questions. I'm very proud of you guys for asking them. <laughs> I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going we're gonna to dig in a little bit here because this is uh, important foundational stuff. Now, the book of Hebrews is toward the very back of your Bible, Right before you get to the book of James, you'll find Hebrews. And I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 1. And we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Let me give you a minute to get there because I don't want you to miss this. This is really foundational to any understanding we're going to have of how we can expect God to communicate. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, okay, so we'll stop right there because that's a little strange way to say this. Um, what he's saying is, we know that God spoke a long time ago, right? He, this is the book of Hebrews. He's writing this to Jews. And in the book of Hebrews, he's writing to a Jewish audience and he's making the argument that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. So he's going to constantly be referring back to Judaism and the Old Testament and all of these stories that they grew up with as Jews. And he's saying, I know you guys know those stories. I know you know about the time with the burning bush. I know you know about the time of the parting of the Red Sea. I know you know how he, how he went before them as a pillar of uh, cloud and a pillar of fire. I know you know about the way he spoke to Abraham, the way he spoke to Lot, and all of those stories. He goes, I know you know that, that God spoke in many ways through prophets to our fathers back in the day. Verse 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Now, you need some explanation here. First of all, it says, in these last days. Did you know we're living in the last days? How long have people been living in the last days? About 2,000 years. Because basically, um, the church era, the age of the church, begins there in, in Acts chapter 2 the, in, on the day of Pentecost, right? And so for roughly 2,000 years since then, 
we have been in the church age. And the church age has certain things that are different about it. In the church age, for example, the Holy Spirit indwells all believers. Before that, the Holy Spirit did not indwell believers, but came and went as, a, as he needed to bring a message, right? But now the Holy Spirit indwells all believers and never leaves us. That's unique to the church age. We live in the church age, also called by the writers of Scripture, the last days. Why is it called the last days? It's not a trick question. <laughs> it's because, yeah, Jesus is coming back. So, so that the church age is the time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, right? And these are considered the last days. How much longer are the last days going to go on? We have no idea. Only the Father knows, right? Okay, so we live in these last days. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that to those of us who live in these last days... There is a new way that God is speaking. There is a new way that God is revealing himself. And it says, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he's making the argument to the Jewish audience that this son, Jesus, is also the one who made the world. He's not just one who is sent from God. He is God, okay? So all of this is being um, laid out for us, and he's saying that he actually communicates to us through the person of Jesus Christ, not just through the words that Jesus speaks, but through Jesus himself. And the book of Romans says that nobody's ever seen God, but Jesus has revealed him to us. So Jesus, who is called the Word of God, is the primary way in which God speaks to his church today. He's the message, Okay. Now, that's really unique. Never before has that been the way that God communicated with people. Now, I want to build on this a little bit, and I want you to go to the book of Jude. If you're in the book of Hebrews, you're going to go to the right. Right before the book of Revelation, you come to the book of Jude. And don't blink or you'll miss it, because it's just one chapter, 25 verses. But there's a verse here that I don't want us to miss. Jude, book of Jude, verse 3. Jude writes this, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. In other words, he's saying, in these last days, when there's all these false teachers arising and everybody's got their own view of the gospel, I want you to contend, to fight, to hold on to the faith. What is the faith? I want you to notice it says, contend earnestly for the faith. We're not to contend earnestly for faith. We're not to contend earnestly for a faith. We're to contend earnestly for the faith. And in the Greek, that's extremely clear. It's a very strong Greek statement, the faith. He's saying there is one faith. What is the faith? Paul calls it also the faith in the book of Galatians, where he's talking about the entire teaching of Scripture. The faith is the whole message of God to his people. And he's saying, contend for the faith, stand earnestly, don't give up, keep fighting for the truth that has already been delivered to us. He says, for it has been handed down once and for all to the saints. The faith, the truth, 
the message of God to his people has been handed down, Jude says, right here at the closing of the first century. He says it's being handed down. It has been handed down to the church once and for all. What's he talking about that's been handed down? The author of Hebrews says the Son is this new way of communicating in the last days. And now Jude says he's communicating the faith, this whole, this whole um, collection of truth that, that constitutes what it is to be a follower of God is handed down once and for all at that time. So what's unique about the age in which we live? Number one, in the last days, we get one of these. We have the Bible, and even, even we're, we're in the last part of the last days, perhaps, right? Because 400 years ago, did anybody have one of these? Did we have them sitting on our shelves? Did, did our ancestors just go and have their quiet time and read the Word of God? No. Not until we had the printing press, the Reformation came, and then Bibles began to be printed and the common man began to have a copy of the Word of God in his hand. That's only in the last few hundred years. So it's an amazing gift that we have to live in the age that we live. Not only are we living in the last days after the whole Word of God has been handed down, but it's literally been handed to us. We can hold it in our hands. We have the whole message right here. That's an incredible, amazing thing. The canon of Scripture is closed at the end of the first century. Okay, now for those of you who have any interest in church history, uh, you'll like this part and the rest of you will, will nod off and we'll wake you up when we're done. But here's the thing. Um, there's, there's some discussion amongst Bible scholars or amongst church historians about the closing of what's called the canon of Scripture, that those books that are clearly understood to be the Word of God, 66 books that we have written by over 40 authors over the course of some 1,500 years that all come together, and it's called the canon of Scripture. When was the canon closed, or is the canon still open? What if someone was to come out today and say, hey, the Lord has been speaking to me, and I have a new book. It's called First Doug, and I want to add it to the New Testament. Do we add something like that? How do we know if we should add it or shouldn't add it? How about all of the amazing manuscripts that have been written? How about Calvin's Institutes or maybe Martin Luther's 95 Theses? Shouldn't we add those to the, to the canon of Scripture? Why don't we add them to the canon of Scripture? The reason is because the canon has been understood to be closed by the church since the death of the last apostle who was John. He wrote the book of Revelation and then he went to heaven, Okay. And after that, there's been no more apostles or their close associates to write Scripture, and the complete Scripture has been recognized by the church since that time as being the Word of God. Finally, in the fourth century, they, there was some controversy over other books, and they were saying, should we add these books to the canon of Scripture? And they had this big council, and they had to decide, and there were all of these theological arguments made about what books should be included in addition to these 66 books, and the answer was none of them. These 66 books have always been understood by the church to be the Word of God. So when Jude says that the whole faith was handed down to us, he's talking about the Word of God, Okay. So we have the closed canon of Scripture, and the apostles have um, passed on, and there's nobody adding to the Word of God today. So Jesus and the apostles recognized the Old Testament as the Word of God and said as much. 
The apostles recognized one another's sacred and inspired writings as Scripture and said as much. Um, And the book of Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, which we've talked about several times already in this series, says that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and is able to convict the heart of man, right? It's living and active. So we've been saying it's not just that God one time spoke and we get to read what He spoke, but that when we open the Word of God, He is speaking from those same words. It's living and active and life-changing. So what does that mean? It means that it's not only accurate to say He spoke, but that He is speaking from His Word today. And just to bring further clarity about this role of Scripture, we have this wonderful verse in 2 Timothy chapter 3, which we've already looked at, but turn there and we'll take a minute with this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, very famous passage, verses 16 and 17, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God or God-breathed and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We have all that we need in the Scripture to be adequately equipped for everything God wants us to do. Everything we need to know about uh, God's will for our lives, we can find in the Scripture and in um, in the witness of the Holy Spirit, which is within us. And the Scripture is sufficient We're not going, oh, if only we had a few more books that would tell us about how to live in today's American economy. No, we don't need it. Everything that we need has been given to us as the faith has been handed down through the Word of God. And so the Word of God is not only true, it's not only God-breathed, but it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That means that His Word is sufficient. And, and I, you know, it may seem to you, especially in this series, like, you know, I'm beating this dead horse. I'm making such a big deal out of the value of the Word of God. But guys, if we don't fight this battle and, and we lose sight of what real truth is, what anchor do we have to hold on to for truth? The Word of God is so essential and so important and such a blessing to us. So God's Word is sufficient and He has gone to great lengths not only to get it written, but to get it to us intact. We have it. That's an amazing blessing. And the other thing that we have in these last days that nobody had before this is the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And I mentioned that earlier, that we have this incredible gift from God that the Holy Spirit never leaves us or forsakes us. Jesus said in John 14, and we looked this up a couple of weeks ago, he said to his apostles, listen, I'm going, but it's better for you that I go because when I go, I will send my spirit and my spirit will be with each one of you individually forever. And he will bring to mind all of my truth. So the Holy Spirit is here and indwells us as believers so that we can understand God's truth. And on the day of Pentecost, that happened. The church was born in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit indwells so that He never leaves us. He guides us. He teaches us. He convicts us. He encourages us. He prompts us. And on and on it goes. And we've been talking about this, so that's why I'm going really fast here. But when we say that God is still speaking to His people today, 
we mean that His Word is living and active and still communicating all the truth that we need. And we mean that His Holy Spirit is working from within us to guide us into that truth and to help us to apply that truth and live according to His will. Even the Old Testament prophets who heard the Word of God directly from God did not have as good a line of communication with God as we have just by holding the Bible in one hand and having the Holy Spirit within our hearts. Even the apostles, when they walked with Jesus and were physically in his presence, watching him act and hearing his words, did not have as clear and concise and direct a message from God as what we have today because we have the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Do you realize what a unique, incredible blessing it is for us to be able to live today in the age of the church? That's why Jesus said it would be better if he left. We have greater access to truth today than anyone has ever had in the history of the world. It's amazing. But here's the problem. People love to go to extremes, don't they? They love to go to extremes. And on the one hand, there are people who want to say that God doesn't speak anymore. We have this book. He spoke in this book. And now we should read this book about the times when he spoke. But other than that, we should not be open to the idea that he may speak to us again because we don't know that. All we know is he spoke in this book. And they say God is not speaking today. On the other extreme, we have people who are so excited whenever someone says, thus saith the Lord, and they just can't wait to jump on to any new teaching, any new idea, any new experience that comes down the pike where people get excited and say, this is from God, and they go, yeah, I want to be a part of that without any discernment, any checking it against the Word of God, any sense from the Holy Spirit about what God is doing. And they just love new and exciting experiences with God, new and exciting messages from God. And, And if someone says, I have a word for you from God, Boy, they just stop in their tracks and they listen to it and they receive it as if they were reading it right out of the Bible. Neither one of those extremes is in line with what God tells us about how he communicates. We we have people on that extreme who just love to say, God is speaking today. And we have all the crazy examples. You know these examples. We have Benny Hinn who says things like, you know, there are actually nine members of the Trinity, not just three, the way the Bible describes it. And people hear this and they go, let's rewrite the theology books. Benny Hinn has given us a new word from God. And if someone questions him about it, his answer is, I know that seems unorthodox. I know it sounds like heresy. I know you've never heard this before, but I have a special anointing. And in this special anointing, he says, God sometimes appears to me in the mirror while I am shaving and gives me new doctrine. And so if you question my doctrine, you are questioning the very word of God. And people go, wow, cool, new doctrine. We have, remember back, I think it was probably the 80s or 90s, remember when Oral Roberts came out and said, listen, if I don't get $15 million by the end of March, God told me he's going to kill me, so everybody send money so that I won't have to die. Man, when I heard that, I wanted to say, let's not wait to the end of March, let's just wipe him out now. (laughs) Save $15 million, right? And people go, oh yeah, where's my checkbook? Because this new revelation from this great man of God, there's, you know, any number of these guys. Robert Tilton says, 
Listen, send me $1,000 of seed faith money, and God promises that your, your investment will grow 100-fold. You'll have $100,000 this year if you send me $1,000. And not only will you get that $100,000, but you will get an anointed prayer cloth that I will send you in the mail, and when you touch it, it will have my anointing on it, and you will be healed because of it. And people say, where do I send the check? Joel Osteen writes a book, and and he says, the title of his book is, Your Best Life Now. Your Best Life Now. Now, any Christian should stop and go, is that right? Is my best life supposed to be on earth? What about what Jesus said about the Son of Man not having a place to lay his head, and anybody who follows him is going to have to take up their cross and follow him, because the day is coming when we are going to be in heaven, and that's going to be our best life. And yet he writes this Christian book entitled Your Best Life Now, and it sits at the top of the New York Times bestseller list for not weeks, not months, but years. See, we love it when people come up with these new ideas, these new communications from God. And I'm not here, listen, listen, there's a lot of great preachers out there who sometimes say something that's off base. Hopefully I'm one of them. I understand that none of us has it right. I'm not sitting here picking people off and going, bad guy, bad guy, bad guy. What I'm saying is that when people claim to speak for God and they're speaking some new revelation, what are they doing with Jude verse 3 where it says the whole faith has been delivered to us once and for all? How do they compare the my thus saith the Lord with the word of God, the scripture? Because when you press them on it, they say, well, no, it's not the same as scripture. You go, well, if it's not the same as scripture, how could it be the word of God? Is, are you telling me that the Word of God is sometimes fallible and sometimes not? And we eat this stuff up. And I wish these were just isolated examples, but I could give you hundreds of shocking examples of times when false teachers are coming right out and lying and people buy into this garbage. And it begs the question, if there's so much dangerous teaching out there, and yet we're saying that God still speaks today, how do we know how to recognize the voice of God in our day and age and differentiate it from these false voices that we're hearing so often? How do we hear the voice of God, respond to the voice of God, and at the same time be careful to avoid falling for a scam? I want us to look at an amazing Old Testament story that is going to help us, I think, um, understand sort of how all of this works. So I want you to turn in your Old Testament to the book of 1 Kings. So while you're going to 1 Kings, let me set the stage. Here in 1 Kings... We're going to meet a man by the name of Elijah. Now, I would say that it's Elijah, Moses, Abraham, and David. They're right up there. Those are the all-stars of the Old Testament. Elijah is considered one of the greatest men of God who ever lived. He's a prophet. Not only is he a prophet, meaning he speaks for God, but he is a miracle worker. And some of the miracles that he worked were beyond imagination, what God did through him. And we're going to see his story unfold over three chapters, and we're obviously going to only have time to skim that, right? So over three chapters, this story is going to unfold, and we're going to see it beginning in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah the Tishbite, meaning he's from a place called Tishbe, was, uh, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, now who is Ahab? He's the guy that went after Moby Dick, right? No, this is a different Ahab. 
Ahab is the king of Israel, okay? Is he a godly king? No, he's the most wicked king that Israel has ever had up until this day. The highlight of his uh, kingdom has been that he has successfully built altars to false gods all around the nation of Israel and torn down the altars to the one true living God. And he and his wicked wife, whose name is Jezebel, not someone anyone ever names their daughter after, right? Um, he and Jezebel have, have led Israel in what you might call um, some sort of a counter-revival where they have turned away from the one true God and turned to idolatry, particularly worshiping this false god by the name of Baal, who in that region is considered to be the fertility god, who is responsible not only for human fertility, but for crop fertility, which means that Baal is the one who sends rain so that we have crops so that we can survive, okay? And they have the people worshiping Baal. Now, verse 2, the word of the Lord came to him saying, oh, oh, I went too far. Go back to verse 1. I stopped at Ahab, didn't I? As the the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. He says, it's not going to rain. God has told me there's going to be a drought. God is withholding rain. Why is he withholding rain? Okay. Now, this isn't Southern California we're talking about. We're talking about Israel in that day. Why was God withholding rain? Because they were worshiping the false rain god. And God's trying to make a point, isn't he? He's saying, you think that's where you get your rain? Keep asking that god for rain. Watch what happens. And no rain is going to fall. He says, no more rain is going to fall for years except by my word. Uh, Verse 2, the word of the Lord came to him saying, go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. Why does he need to hide himself? Because King Ahab is going to kill him. As the drought goes on, who's going to get blamed for the drought? Elijah, he's the one who said, I'm going to say now no more rain and it won't rain until I say again. Okay. Although if Ahab had any brain in his head, he would not have tried to kill Elijah because then there'd never be rain again, right? He says, there'll never be rain except by my word. Now, verse four, it shall be, God says to Elijah, it shall be that you will drink of the brook and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. Now, this is weird. God says, I want you to go live in the woods and you're just gonna camp out by this stream and that's where you're gonna drink because it's a freshwater stream. You get your water out of there And don't worry about food. You're not going to have to hunt. You're not going to have to fish. You're not going to have to run to Costco and stack up. You don't have to do any of that stuff. All you have to do is wait, and I will send ravens, and the ravens will bring you bread and meat. Now, really? That takes some faith, doesn't it? To trust that God's going to actually do that? And yes, of course, God does it. Every morning and every evening, the ravens show up and they feed him. It's like um, something out of Snow White, right? The birds come and they have stuff for her. That's what was happening for real. And so he's doing that. It's just like manna coming from heaven. He's learning to trust God as he stays there by the brook, and he's just waiting for their instruction, okay? Now, skip down to verse 7. It happened after a while that the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. Now, this is just as unlikely, okay? 
First of all, it's been years. There's been no rain. So much so that the brook doesn't exist anymore. There's nowhere to get water for him. And so people are, are starving to death all over Israel. And he says, don't worry, I'm going to send you to Sidon, which is a pagan city. And he says, there is a widow there, because, you know, widows are known for their great wealth. And he says, there's a widow there who will provide for you. In other words, I'm going to send you to an unbelieving land where an unbelieving widow is going to use the resources she does not have to provide for you there. I have commanded her, he says, to do it. Verse 9. Verse 10, so he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and said, please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. Now, that is like going to Disneyland and walking up to the window and saying, please give me a free season pass. No, that's not going to happen. A season pass to Disneyland costs like $290 million, right? There's, it, you can't get that. What is the most valuable commodity in the land after all these years of famine? Water. He says to this poor woman, get me some water. She says, yes. And as she's going to get it, verse 11, he called to her and said, please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. The second most valuable thing, food. But she said, as the Lord your God lives. Notice not the Lord my God, the Lord your God. She knows he's a prophet by his dress and his hairstyle. And so, no, literally, that's how she knows. And so, as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. She says, it's strange that you would come at this time because this is literally the last of our resources. We have no more money. We have no more resources. We have no more way to live. We're running out of water. We're running out of oil. We're running out of flour. We have no meat. We have no vegetables. We have no anything. And we are already shrunk down and skinny as we can be. And we know this is going to be our last meal. And we're going to sit down and eat this little, you know, muffin. And then we're going to die. And he says... Verse 13, do not fear, do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me and afterward you may make one for yourself and your son. What's he saying to her? Are you going to trust God or not? I'm coming as a representative of God and God is saying through me that you need to give me water and bread and you are saying, but we don't have it to give. And he says, give it to me first. And when you give it to me first, then God will provide it for you and your son. And of course, if you know the story, that's exactly what happens. As the days go by, every day they get up in the morning, there is enough oil and enough flour to feed the three of them for that day. And the next day, the oil and the flour is replenished and it goes on day after day, just like manna from heaven again. And so it's pretty cool. It seems like a small miracle, doesn't it? When we think about, you know, it's a little oil, it's a little, little bread. Do you think it was a big miracle to her? Think it was a big miracle to her son? This is the real God reaching out to this woman who doesn't even have any knowledge of him and saying, I'm going to save you. And he does it. It's amazing. It's amazing how she trusts him and she sees the benefit of that. Um, but then... Before long, 
things take a turn for the worse. Her son dies. Now, her husband is already dead. All she's got left is her son. And her son dies. And like a lot of grieving parents, she is mad at God. And she doesn't understand. And so she's crying out. And let's pick it up in verse, um, in verse 8. No, in verse 17. Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick, and his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, what do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring uh, my iniquity or, uh, to remembrance and to put my son to death. He said to her, give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom, carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. He called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him and he revived. Did you get that? God raised this boy from the dead. Now, you thought it was pretty impressive when he put oil and flour in the jars, didn't you? That was a cool little miracle, wasn't it? This is a miracle that puts him in Jesus' level of miracle working here, right? He is seeing God do something amazing. God is revealing himself in his absolutely undeniable way. He is taking death and bringing it to life. It's incredible. Only God could do this. Would you agree? This is a way that God is communicating. Would you agree? It's a way that God is showing himself strong. Now, um, this happens, and he returns the son to the widow, and she, of course, is overjoyed. Meanwhile, Jezebel and Ahab are getting more and more angry because the drought continues, right? So what are they doing? They're rounding up anybody who is a worshiper of the one true God and putting them to death. So now people are renouncing their faith in the one true God. Everybody is now going over to worship Baal. They're, all of the prophets have been wiped out except for a handful who are now hiding in a cave trying to stay alive. And of course, Elijah is in Sidon where he's hiding at this woman's house so, so that he can stay alive. Now go to chapter 18 and pick it up in verse 17. When Ahab, well, I should have told you this. From that place, God says, I want you to go talk to Ahab. Um, Ahab? Yeah, Ahab. The Ahab who's trying to kill me? Yes, that Ahab. I want you to go and have a face-to-face -face meeting with Ahab. So Elijah sets it up. Verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is this you, you troubler of Israel? He said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. Now, Send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. He says, I want you to get all the false prophets in the land. I want you to get all of the citizens of the land. And I want you to get everybody together in this giant field out by Mount Carmel. And there at the foot of Mount Carmel, I want you to gather everybody. And so that's what happens. They gather everybody. And it says, verse 20, so Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Now, the stage is set for the confrontation to begin. The question is going to be, is God God or is Baal God? 
And basically, Elijah stands before the people and he says, listen, you got a choice to make. Who's God? Who are you going to worship? And he says, you see all of these prophets, there are 850 of them together in total. You see all of these prophets of these idols, right? We're going to give them an opportunity to show us how strong their gods are. And so here's what he proposes. He says, we're going to have two different altars. And we're going to cut up an ox and we're going to put some of the ox on this altar and we're going to put sticks underneath it and you're going to cry out to your God and ask him to send fire to consume the, um, the offering. And, and then I'm going to call out to my God and ask him to send fire to consume this offering and we'll see how it goes. And he says, just to show you that I'm a sporting guy, I'll let you go first. And so they, they set up this altar, they cut up the meat, they put the dry sticks underneath, and they're ready, and they begin to cry out to Baal. And they say, come on, Baal, you could do it. Come on, Baal, send your fire, and on and on. And they go from the morning until noon, and nothing happens. And then it's kind of interesting. Let me see if I can find it. Um, uh, verse 21 Oh, no, that's not where I want to be. Let me, let's see. Yeah, verse 27, thanks. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a god. Either he's occupied or has gone aside or is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. I love sarcasm. He's, he's mocking them, right? And by the way, literally... Literally, where it says either he's occupied or gone aside, that the Hebrew word there for gone aside literally means sitting on the toilet. That's what they're saying about his God. They're like, hey, you know, he's probably in the bathroom. Just keep calling. I'm sure he'll be out in a few minutes. And he's mocking them. And all of the people are standing around going, oh, they're mock he's mocking Baal. Oh, this is not going to be good. And he keeps mocking and mocking and mocking. And guess what? Baal never comes out of the bathroom. So they cried out with a loud voice, verse 28, cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out on them. When midday was passed, they raved until the time of the evening, uh, the offering of the evening sacrifice, for there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention from morning till night even sacrificing their own bodies and cutting themselves. And it says, I love the way God's word says it. No one heard, no one paid attention. There was no God to hear them. Their God doesn't exist. And now they're humiliated, they're crying out, they're bleeding. And Elijah says, enough. Let's set up this altar. And he goes over and he puts the ox on the altar. And then he says, you know, do me a favor. Go get a big barrel of water and bring it and pour the barrel of water over the top of the meat and it will run down the altar and even get the sticks wet. I'm not talking about a bottle of water. I'm not talking about a cup of water. Bring a barrel of water. And they bring this barrel of water. Now, again, what is water worth? Everything. It's the most valuable commodity they have. If you want to get killed in this culture, waste somebody's water, right? So they, he pours all this water, and then he says, you know what? Bring another barrel. They bring another barrel of water, and they pour that. He says, you know what? Let's just do it one more time. And they pour a third barrel of water to the point where it's now like a moat or, or like a little pond that the, the meat is basically just floating in this pond. 
and then it happens. Um, verse 36. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel, that I'm your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, Lord, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And in one moment, Israel went from being a pagan society to coming back to worship the one true God. This is the most amazing revival that takes place as God shows himself strong through this man, Elijah, as he cries out. This is awesome, except for one thing. Now Jezebel is really mad because after this, Elijah takes all the prophets and kills them on the spot. These are the people she eats dinner with, and he has wiped them all out. And so now she's really mad, and she starts making threats on Elijah's life. And when she says, I'm going to get Elijah killed, you know what Elijah does, this amazing man of faith, this great man of God, this miracle worker who raises the dead and calls down fire from heaven and has seen God do so many amazing things to protect him? You know what he does when this woman says, I want him dead? He runs like a scared little girl. He just takes off. He says, I can't bear this. And he becomes depressed. Go to chapter 19 and, and pick it up in verse 9. Um, now, pick it up in verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life, for I am not better than my father's. I have had it. This woman's going to kill me, and I'm just sick of this, and I just want to die. And he lays down and sleeps under the juniper tree, verse 5. An angel comes to him and says, awake and eat some food. He eats the food, goes back to sleep. Another angel comes, wakes him up again, says, have some more food. You're going to need it. And then he goes on the strength of that food for 40 days, according to verse 8, to Horeb, the mountain of God. Verse 9. Then he came there at Horeb to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, boy, have I got a bone to pick with you. I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking the pieces, the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle, went out and stood in the entrance of the cave, and behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he repeats the conversation with God where he cries out to God and says, you know what, this is not fair. And God sort of says, you know, they're there. I'm not finished with you yet. 
I have a great plan for your life. You don't understand what's going on, but I'm going to tell you what's going to happen next, and I want you to walk in my truth and experience what I'm going to do through you from this point on. Your life is not over. See, God wasn't in the earthquake. He wasn't in the hurricane. He wasn't in the fire. What was he in? The gentle blowing, the still, small voice of God. And God met him there, and he gave him instructions about how to proceed with his ministry and his life. See, we are so impressed with the flashy stuff. We are so impressed with the miracles and the great claims and the look what God did and God saying something new, and we're all so impressed with all of that kind of stuff. And we see something amazing happen. We hear a great charismatic speaker talking about some new kind of teaching, and our ears perk up, right? And, and that's exactly what God's Word said would happen. Remember 2 Timothy chapter 3 where he says all Scripture is inspired by God? I want you to go back to 2 Timothy just real quick as we wind this down. 2 Timothy, but instead of 3, go to chapter 4. Because in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in the same exact context, just a few verses after he tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he goes on. Remember verse 17 of chapter 3, so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work by the word of God. Verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. That's the same thing he just said the word is good for, Right? Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Now, does that help us understand what we're seeing in our culture today? That the day's coming, he said to Timothy, the young pastor, when they're not really going to want to listen to that same old Bible stuff. Instead, they're going to want something new, something fascinating, something interesting, and they're going to just flock to the teachers who are teaching something else. He said, but you keep fighting with the Word of God. Preach the Word. Preach the Word. Preach the Word. Because the Word is the way that I speak to my people. People love to hear something new especially if you combine it with some kind of impressive show. When people hear some new preacher preaching some new idea and putting on an impressive show, they get easily caught up, right? Easily pulled away, especially if the message is one that you want to hear, like the prosperity gospel that's so popular today. God wants you to be rich, and God wants you to be happy, and God wants you to be comfortable, and how you feel today is the most important thing to God. People love that stuff because we want to hear it. And we'll flock to people who tell us what we want to hear. But how does God really speak today? Is it in the earthquake or the fire or the violent wind? It's in the still small voice, isn't it? And where do we find a still small voice? When we take this book and we get away from the noise and we get to a quiet place and we open it and he speaks to us from his word. See, if you'll get quiet, God will speak to you more clearly than Elijah ever heard him. But you've got to get in his word. 
There's no need for some new revelation from God. 2 Timothy 3 tells us that Scripture is sufficient for everything that we need to hear from God. And He's given us the Holy Spirit so that that subjective side is covered as well, that He can prompt us and guide us and convict us and encourage us and do all of those kinds of things. But if you're looking for some new revelation, if you're looking for some new message from God, you're not going to find it because God has already given us the faith delivered once and for all to his church. So be careful with the subjective side of hearing God. Always check everything against the scripture and walk closely with God. And I promise you will hear his voice through his word and his Holy Spirit. Don't miss God because of all the distractions, even the impressive distractions. Let's pray together.